On this week's Behind the Idea, we invite JD.com bull Lester Goh to share his research and take on the e-commerce titan. One of the things we get into is Richard Liu's central role in a lot of people's views of the company and the flaws therein. But I think more generally, the point that, that I'm trying to investors kind of are facing is that like if you have a thesis where the founder or the management is kind of like the largest part of the main part or what is underpinning your thesis, I think they're kind of like problematic. We also talk about the concerns that often come up when discussing China-based companies and draw on an example of corporate misgovernance closer to home. Many people kind of regard like Jack, Jack Welch as like best CEO in, in or best, best manager of the 20th century. But I mean, now I think if you look at General Electric closely, you can kind of like discern that much of Jack Welch's successes has been largely driven by aggressive accounting and so has most of his successes. We talk a lot on Behind the Idea about the importance of doing the work and of not getting stuck in shortcuts or biases and at the same time how sometimes the extra work doesn't pay off. Lester has done the work on JD, and he shares it in copious detail on this podcast. The question is, is it worth the work? Find out on this week's Behind the Idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Daniel Schwartzman. We're going back to JD.com today to discuss the Chinese e-commerce company further. It's a leader in the industry, but endured a terrible 2018 with headwinds like the China-U.S. trade discussions, as well as more local issues with CEO and founder Richard Liu facing serious accusations in the second half of the year, which were eventually not pursued. We're joined today by Lester Goh, a Seeking Alpha author who has made some compelling arguments about JD, though I should say mostly on his blog and Twitter account. I'm going to ask him about the concerns we raised last time out and try to get deeper into the bull case for JD going forward. Before we get started, Behind the Idea is the podcast that looks at what makes great investment analysis work based on articles from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. I don't have any positions in any of the stocks we're going to discuss, while Lester is long JD. You can subscribe to us wherever you get podcasts, and if you have the chance to leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it as it will help other investors find this podcast. Okay, Lester, welcome to the podcast. Yep, I'm happy to be here, and I'm very glad to have this opportunity. Great. So let's just jump right into what what is your thesis on JD? The last thing I read that you wrote about was in September what do you think about the company now? They just reported earnings. We're, you know, new year. What do you think about JD? So I think uh, with respect to kind of their recently released earnings, I think the quarter was quite well. There was some issue in the prior quarter where there was some concerns over user growth, but I think this quarter kind of showed that that, that concern is not really warranted. And regarding my kind of overview or, or overall view on JD, I kind of have three things uh, which kind of like form the base of my thesis. So basically, I believe that JD is one, the lowest cost operator in China retail. And second, I believe that it kind of has a very long runway for reinvestment. And lastly, I kind of believe that the valuation for JD, especially at its current current valuation, is very compelling. So basically, for JD, JD is mainly a retailer. And when we kind of talk about retailers, the things that really matter are kind of like sales per square foot, its cost structure and inventory turnover, 
So if you consider Costco, why is Costco shorts a great retailer? It's because it kind of has sales per square foot of 1,200 and our max margin of about 10%. And it turns over its inventory roughly 11 times a year. And these metrics are very, very good in retailing. And if you look at JD, uh, if you look at its direct sales per square foot, it has sales per square foot of roughly 450. This is in US dollars. The Costco one is also in US dollars. But JD has a large marketplace business. And for a marketplace business, you kind of recognize revenues on a net basis instead of on a gross basis compared to direct sales. So if you kind of adjust the marketplace GMV for value-added tax and uh, estimated return rate, then JD's total sales per square foot will be roughly US dollars, 1,000. And if you compare this to kind of like Walmart, Walmart does around 500. And so on inventory turnover, if you compare JD to its competitors, JD kind of turns its inventory over roughly nine times a year. Suning is also at nine times, Gourmet is at five, Lianhua is at eight, and Sanat is at five. So basically, JD turns over its inventory much more compared to its competitors. And okay, so recently, JD has kind of been front-loading a lot of its logistics and R&D investment. And, but prior to this, uh, it had OPEX margin, so basically operating expenses as a percentage of sales of around 12%, and its peers have roughly 15% and up. So this advantage in cost structure is actually much larger than this 12 to 15% plus because the comparison when we compare JD towards uh, its competitors is not really apples to apples because JD has a large market-based business which is roughly half of its GMV and its competitors, their market-based businesses are much smaller. So this in effect kind of overstates its margin for JD so in fact it will be much lower. So. Basically, this we have kind of like covered like three things. Uh, JD has very good uh, efficiency in sales per square foot and inventory turnover, and it's also kind of have a large advantage in concept structure. So what this allows the company to kind of do is to kind of like price lowers that price price lower than its competitors and reverse rebates from suppliers into discount coupons for its consumers. And apart from this, the company has also kind of reinvested in log logistics. And this reinvestment in logistics have been very successful in that it allowed JD to have roughly 20% lower per order for fulfillment costs compared to third-party express couriers such as ZTO, YTO, SF Express have low costs compared to them. So I think I think I think one one issue that people kind of like the one issue that's kind of controversial is that a lot of people seem to have the opinion that JD will never make money because kind of like if you look at their gross margins, they are pretty low and they are kind of concentrated in product categories such as there are very low margins such as electronics. Well, I believe that like while JD is not profitable on a consolidated basis, I believe on a unit unit economic basis, even in categories such as electronics, they have really uh, they, 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 they are actually profitable on that basis. So I mean if you if you take example, let's say we have an electronics order of around uh, RMB one thousand and you have a five percent gross margin which is kind of standard for electronics, this will give you kind of five uh, 50, 50 RMB in gross profit per order. And on and if you look at JD's OPEX per order it's around twenty four and this gives them EBIT order of around 26 for such a low 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 gross margin category so i believe actually on a unit economic basis is actually kind of 
very profitable. So I've kind of covered like uh, why I believe JD has the lowest cost structure in China retail. And the next part is about why I believe the company kind of has a long runway to reinvest. So if you look at, if you compare kind of like China to other developed countries, uh, their household income and consumption uh, relative to GDP is around, for China, it's around 30 to 40%. And if you look at other developed countries, it's around 50 to 70%. So I think that as China continues to develop over a very long-term basis, there's upside to this number. And JD is also kind of like gaining share, gaining share from like consumer-consumer, like Taobao, and less efficient online offline retailers. And if you kind of look at its market share as a percentage of total China's retail sales, it's around low single digit. So I think there's a lot of upside to that number. And if you look at its customer base, so JD, what it does, it, it provides cohort numbers like orders per, by cohort. And if you look at the total customer base, they kind of purchase around eight to nine orders per year. But the 2008 cohort, which is a very early cohort, purchased kind of like 30 orders per year. And so the average kind of has significant upside towards the older cohorts. And, uh, and another thing I think about reinvestment is that the problem with many companies is that, well, you we can reinvest, but uh, you kind of like need, need to spend a lot. Uh, in terms of capex and to kind of like fund a reinvestment, whereas I think JD, in a sense, is kind of special in that it kind of have negative investor capital. So most of their reinvestment in capex is actually funded by accounts payable, which are driven by their supplier rebates. So lastly, I believe that kind of like JD has a very compelling valuation. So if you if you if you kind of net off its stake in JD Finance, JD Logistics, and you take out its net cash short-term investments and investment in equity investees. This all calculates, to, it all comes out to around $22 per share. And if you look at the current price, it's around 28 So basically, the market is kind of valuing the core business at around $6 per share. And and, and, and I think this is a number that's kind of, uh, this valuation is kind of like, uh, it doesn't really attribute much value to the core business. So the way I kind of look at the core business is that there is two sides to the business. One is the direct sales business, and the other side is kind of like the marketplace business. So the direct sales business is kind of like the normal retail business. So I believe that if you use a 4% operating margin for the direct sales business, it's something that's very reasonable. And if you use a 30% operating margin for the marketplace business, which is also something I think is really, is also reasonable, you'll get kind of like, uh, and if you do this on the 2018 numbers, you'll get kind of like, $2.65 in EBIT per share and relative to the $6 that market is valuing JDN, I think this is very compelling. JD is basically being valued at two times fiscal 18, fiscal 18 normalized EBIT. So I think, I think, so basically I think that, you know, JD, it's, I'm, I'm long and I think that it's very compelling due to these three reasons. Okay. That's, that's a really thorough thesis. I have, some of my other questions are kind are kind of going to drill into this a little more. But one immediate follow up I had is when you said the uh, this is a technical question, but we're talking about square or sales per square foot, but we're talking about an e commerce retailer, and so I'm just curious how how investors, how our listeners should be thinking about how to translate a number like that as compared to a Costco, which has has e commerce but is mostly a 
physical retailer? How does what's the how do you kind of make that comparison when you're analyzing JD? So basically, I think that if you look at Costco versus JD, basically Costco, basically the entirety of their sales is direct sales. So they do not really have like a marketplace business. So for most of their sales, uh, if you exclude the membership uh, subscription part, most of their sales, they, the direct sales, they are recognized on what uh, on a net basis, or uh, sorry, on a gross basis. So basically, Costco is the principal in the transaction. They, you know, they take inventory risk to get set prices and such. But if you look at JD, there's kind of two parts. So they have their direct sales business, which is recognized in the same way as as Costco, and they have the marketplace business, where basically the revenue is kind of recognized on a on an agent basis. So instead of recognizing if you have an order of like hundred bucks, instead of recognizing the full hundred bucks for the market the business, you recognize kind of your commission or your take rate from that from that hundred. So you recognize something like eight or nine dollars. So in effect, what this does is that if you compare it to Costco, you need to make the adjustment and then you kind of need to adjust the, 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 the marketplace business uh, to, to, to make it comparable with the direct sales business. So the way I kind of did it is, is that there are two main adjustments. So for, for JD specifically, uh, their marketplace GMV is kind of like uh, half of their total GMV. So, and, and, and the difference between uh, market building GMV and and and, and and kind of like net revenues on like the 1P basis is basically value added tax and a return rate and cancellation rate. So in China, the value added tax is 17%. So you can adjust that. And then for the return rate, this is something that is kind of like, uh, you, you kind of need to estimate it. So when JD kind of like, Earlier uh, in like 2015, 2016, JD, what they did was they released uh, two GMV numbers. So one number was that was was uh, orders, basically just orders, whether it's been you know purchased or it's cancelled or undelivered or uncompleted, it record everything. So that's for the GMV number, and they also released another number called uh, they call call GMV, which is basically purchases that's been completed. So if you take the if you if you if you take the difference between the two and you take out value added tax, you kind of get an implied return rate. So basically, the way I kind of translate JD's three uh, P GMV to kind of like a one P basis is I I use the three P GMV number. I just for the value added tax and then I just for the return rate, and that's how I kind of make it apples to apples to to compare to something like Costco. But what what's the square footage for JD? Is it just their warehouse square footage, or how, what what does that consist of? Yeah, so for JD, mainly 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 their square footage is warehouses. So I mean, there's some stuff like you know if they have their headquarters, that's there. Some of it is uh, counted as square footage. But the the number that I use for JD is basically their warehouse square foot. Uh, they, they they put it in square meters. So as of the most recent quarter, they have around 12 million in square meters of warehouse capacity, and this is roughly 130 million uh, square feet. Square feet. And for Costco, the reason why I kind of like chose Costco as a comparison is because well, Costco they they are kind of like a warehouse retailer in that they don't really have they're not like a Walmart where you know they, they sell it through the stores they, they kind of sell things through their warehouse instead of a store you know, so I think it's kind of like a, a much better comparison if I compared to me comparing to like Walmart got it okay interesting it's it's just interesting because they really make stark the contrast between online and 
even with Costco not having a traditional storefront, it's still a very sort of physical versus online uh, number to think about. The valuation I wanted to get into was interesting to me. So first of all, one of the things we talked about, we used an article from Long Hill Road Capital, a Seeking Alpha author, to launch our discussion. And their article was based on the idea of it really focused on the idea that JD has all these other stakes. You mentioned JD Finance, JD Logistics, equity investments. And I guess my first question is just we, you know, with normal enterprise value, you net out cash, short term investments that are easily liquidated into cash. Uh, against debt. And in this case, we're talking about long-term investments. And I guess my question is just what's your thought process on netting those out to get to that EV to EBIT number that you talked about? And then what is the, why does JD, like from just a business perspective, why does JD have these investments? How does it help their business or you as a shareholder? What do you think about them owning stakes of these other companies that don't necessarily seem related to JD's core business? Okay, so kind of on the first question, like the reason, I guess the, 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 it's kind of like a general issue. So for a lot of businesses, they look really, really attractive on an SOTB basis. So basically you're netting out some cash investments, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, you, you look at uh, what the market is implying for the core business and you look at that and you think it's cheap. But I think the, in, uh, an important distinction to me is whether management is kind of like focused on or management is kind of like on the lookout for opportunities to kind of monetize these investments. So for some companies, for example, uh, locally, we have a company, in, locally as in Singapore, we have a company called Hallbath Capital. And so basically this, this company is a very strong consumer business, but they also have a very large stake in a few of the local banks and the property developer. And the problem is that, you know, it looks attractive on some of the parts basis, but if you, but it kind of assumes that management will divest those, uh, you know, stakes in the bank and the property level. But the problem is they've been holding it for 20 years. So, you know, it's probably, they're not probably going to monetize it anytime soon. So as for JD in particular, I think it's kind of appropriate to exclude this investment from EV because if you look at JD, if you look at what management has done like over the past few years, it is quite clear to me that they are very focused on monetizing their assets whenever they can. So for example, for JD Finance, in 2017, they did a spin-off and they raised something like 14.4 billion. Uh, this is in renminbi, RMB. And for JD Logistics, they raised around 13 billion, also in renminbi. And in the most recent quarter, they kind of have established uh, a GPLP structure with uh, GIC, where they kind of like sold uh, logistic assets and warehouse assets to GIC, and, and the valuation was around 10.9 billion in renminbi. And basically, this 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 situation kind of suggests that you know management is kind of very focused on on monetizing assets whenever they can. So I think for 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 JD in particular, given management's focus on on capital allocation, uh, I think it's appropriate to exclude these investments from EV. Whereas, you know, if you give me another company uh, that where management is really reluctant to do so, I would think it would be inappropriate to exclude them. And on the other question, basically of oh wow, well if you look at JD, they invest in all this, all these uh, equity investors. So like Yonghui, like Big Auto, like Easing, Tunio, VIP Shop. Like why why do they invest in this? I think like this investment is kind of like 
it's meant to augment areas where JD is weak. So, for example, if you look at Yonghui, uh, it's groceries. So, JD, it has a grocery business, a fresh goods business, but it's, it's not something that JD is very good at. I mean, it's a growing business, but JD is really known kind of for their, their electronics and for their home appliance uh, business. So, I think that uh, JD makes these investments to kind of augment areas where they are weak. So for Yonghui, it's groceries. For Bin Auto and Yixing, it's cars. For Tunio, it's kind of like travel. And for VIP shop, it's apparel. So apart from kind of like augmenting areas where JD is weak, I think this also has an additional benefit in that it kind of lowers, cost, it kind of lowers customer acquisition costs for JD because all of these investors, Yonghui, Tunio, VIP shop, they kind of have a pre-existing, pre-existing customer base. So JD is kind of like making the investment or making the, the, the acquisition of customers through their investment. So I think that's kind of like uh, a, an additional benefit that JD gets uh, through these investments. And I think it makes a lot of sense. But I mean, there are some investments that JD makes that I don't think makes a lot of sense, but I, those are pretty small. And so, you know, I don't really bother about that because as long as it remains very small. Okay, interesting. So it, it it's strategic in some ways because then they can because they're all primarily e-commerce businesses either to acquire customers through those relationships or to learn from different verticals so as to better inform JD's business is sort of how it fits into why why do this. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. I think that's fair to say. Okay. So the other part of the valuation I want to hit on is you you ended up using, if I understood right, a normalized EBIT once you, let's just leave it that, normalized EBIT, enterprise yeah. value adjusted for these stakes is your numerator. And my question is, for example, their free cash flow was negative last year. They, I guess my question is, when do you think that JD hits that normalized a bit when do you think that they achieve sort of sustainable free and i know they've been positive free cash flow at some point but like when do they hit sustained positive free cash flow what is the sort of scope that you're looking at this investment for that valuation to to become apparent to the market that it is you know as i mean what did you say it was two times or three times ev either way it's a, a crazy number crazy number for a growing company. So what's your sort of time frame for when when this actually achieves normalization? So I think for JD in particular, uh, management has kind of guided towards increasing the annual net margin on a consolidated basis every year. And I mean, this is kind of not really a hard guideline in that in the sense that if you know they, they find that they can they have opportunities to kind of reinvest uh, they will kind of like delay that margin uh, uh, target by, by by a couple of years and I think this has kind of happened in 2017 and 2018 where they realized that a lot of uh, a lot of merchants a lot of the party merchants in China uh, they, they valued a, a courier that can kind of like deliver deliver e-commerce goods and stuff uh, very efficiently and JD is one of that. So what JD did was they kind of like overbuilt their logistic capacity. So if you look at, and this also kind of ties into why the free cash flow has been kind of like 
pretty bad in 2018. But so basically what JD did was they, they overbuilt logistics capacity. If you look at for over the fiscal 15 to 18 period, they increased their warehouse capacity by like 82% in, in 2015, 40% in 2016, 79% in 2017, and 20% in 2018. And if you compare this to their sales growth or GMV growth, this is far in excess of their sales growth and GMV growth. So it kind of tells you that they are kind of front-loading all this investment. So, and if... One, one, one kind of question about that is the obvious question about that is that, well, if they're front-loading all these investments, whether it has been paying off, and I think it has been, because if you look at their logistic business, which they recently kind of separately disclosed, or at least the, the revenues from the logistic business on the third-party basis, this business has grown by 37% in fiscal 16, uh, around 60% in fiscal 17, and around 140% in fiscal 18. So apart from this, apart from kind of like doing the 3P logistics thing, JD has also been building warehouse to kind of monetize them through a GPLP structure. Like I mentioned, the, the, the transaction with GIC. So basically what JD does is they do a sale lease back to the limited partnership and then they get the GP to the fund and then they have a call option on future asset appreciation. So that's one reason kind of why JD's free cash flow has been pretty bad and why it's margins has been kind of like the margin expansion has kind of been delayed and the other question is kind of like or the other point I want to make which is on free cash flow is that in 2018 or 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 more, to be more precise, on the back half of 2017 and the first half of 2018, what happened in China was that regulators kind of changed the settlement process for marketplace transactions. So previously, what JD could do and other other e-commerce companies could do was that if a consumer paid you before they had receive delivery of the goods, you can process that payment through your own payment company. So JD has JDPay, sometimes they use WeChat Pay, Alibaba uses Alipay, and Tencent, well, they use WeChat Pay. So in, so that was what it could do previously. So, but regulators, what they did was they came out with a regulation that says that, oh, you must settle all these transactions uh, through third-party payment companies. You cannot use your own payment company. And if you look at the impact on JD, on their cash flow, in basically in 1Q18, there was in Renminbi 5.3 billion decrease in advance from customers, which is basically representing the customers paying prior to receiving the goods. And from 3Q17 to 2Q18, which is kind of the period that I mentioned, uh, they had an impact of around a cash flow impact of in total around 9 billion Renminbi. So I think this kind of the, the, the change in the settlement process for marketplace transactions and JD's overbuilding of logistic capacity. It kind of explains why their free cash flow has been pretty endemic in 2018 and the logistics side, it kind of explains and, and uh, why why they, they basically the margin expansion progress has been kind of delayed. So, I mean, for regarding sustained free cash flow generation, what you say that, or, you know, when will JD kind of like generate cash on a sustainable basis? I think that they have kind of like went through their largest investment phase. The re most recent one was them reinvesting their 3P logistics. And they also will let the change in the settlement process for marketplace transactions. And I think this will allow JD to kind of like 
revert to generating substantial cash flow as it has in the past. But one point I wanted to make about this is that much of a lot, a lot of GD's cash flow, if you look at the prior years, they are it is not profit driven and it's not driven by like you know EBIT or like net income. It is driven by their negative working capital structure. So this negative working capital structure is really as a result of merchants kind of funding JD's business. So if you look at their accounts payable and their cash they generate from accounts payable, it is a very large portion of their free cash flow. So I think investors, when they're kind of like looking at cash, they should ignore uh, the, 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 the contribution from uh, the positive contribution or at least the cash from this working capital boss. It is something that, is, that I do not believe is sustainable if you look at JD on a steady state basis. Okay, really interesting. That, that's helpful. I think I, I want to get into questions about the reinvestment, but maybe I'll do that when we talk about China more globally. But yeah, it's just interesting to think about because one of the challenges here is that it is a growth company and figuring out how to adjust for that and value appropriately. And then these other factors that we'll get into in a second, what that means for their growth outlook for the company, et cetera. So the first question I wanted to sort of ask about that, we, we had a few sort of topics that really stood out to us about JD and what could potentially be risks to the thesis. One of them that I'm, I'm my favorite sort of question around this is whether JD is a crowded trade. Do you worry that to give a trivial example of this, if you look on Seeking Alpha, the last seven authors who have written about the stock are bullish or very bullish. If you look to me, we describe JD as sort of the cooler China play as compared to Alibaba. It's one that along with, I would argue, along with Tencent, it's one that people who are digging a little bit deeper are investing in in China. And so I guess, do you ever worry that this is a crowded trade? Do you worry that it's a trade, which by which I mean that maybe there's a consensus that leads to higher expectations or that there's a risk if the story turns of you know, it 2018 may have in part been an example of this, but of the of the stock falling apart because there's so many people already on the bullish side of the story. So I think like I, I like to call myself a long term investor and of course a lot of or mostly everyone will call themselves a long term investor, but you know, being a being long term actually doing it is kind of a different thing. But Regarding whether, you know, I'm worried whether the JD uh, trade is kind of like crowded, I think it only matters to the extent that if it affects the value of the company. So if kind of like, if a trade is crowded, it tends to result in like very outsized reactions on both the upside and the downside. And I mean, these reactions, apart from giving investors opportunities to enter and exit, I think this would matter to the sense that it will affect the value of the company. If the company in question kind of like requires funding from the capital markets. So basically, if you have a very outsized reaction to upside, uh, this will allow the company to raise equity more cheaply because you know, the valuation is higher and vice versa. But I think that this uh, specific to JD, I think that the crowdedness of the trade doesn't really matter uh, as it, because it doesn't really affect the value of the company. So if you look at JD, they have been largely self-funding or to be more accurate, their suppliers have been funding their growth. And so JD doesn't really need 
uh, or at least it is at a point in time, at, at this point in time, JD already need funding from the capital markets and I don't I don't foresee it needing funding from the capital markets in the foreseeable future. I think in JD, if you look at JD in like 2014 where they weren't really cash flow positive, I think that would be more of an issue, but I think we have pretty much passed that phase. Okay, interesting. Okay, that seems reasonable. And sometimes a good example of how one of the challenges I think of our current sort of environment with Seeking Alpha, with Twitter, with other sources of information is that it gets easy to get caught up in these sort of short, as much as like you said, everybody says they're a long-term investor, but then Q4 2018 rolls around and everybody's freaking out because they're down 10% or 20%. And so... How much does the China trade war, the China U.S. trade war matter? It, it's possible that by the time we're post, we're recording this on Friday, we're posting on Tuesday, talks are ongoing. So it's, you know, you never know when it, something could be resolved. But what do you, how much do you think this actually matters to JD, irrespective of what, what happens between the U.S. and China? So I think for JD, I mean, if you, if you look at JD, they don't really have, much business outside of China. So they have a joint venture with in, in Thailand with Central Group, which is a large video con- conglomerate in Thailand. And they have an e-commerce business in Indonesia, but these businesses are very small. They are like, I think, low single-digit uh, percentage of revenue. And so on the direct basis, like I don't think the trade war matters much, but indirectly, I think the trade war could kind of affect JD in uh, depending on how the negotiations go. So basically, if uh, one one risk that I view as something that could come from the trade war uh, is that like uh, if you look in Tuanshov, what the SEC did was they brought proceedings against five audit firms in China, and these five audit firms included JD's auditor. And basically what the SEC said that, oh, you know, these auditors, they refused to produce documentation that will allow SEC to kind of like audit or to like oversee them. And in 2014, two years later, the SEC suspended four of these firms from practicing. But this suspension was reversed on appeal and the audit firms agreed to pay a fine. And the problem with this is kind of like, the SEC wants to be able to oversee auditing in China, but the problem with it is that Chinese secrecy laws prohibit Chinese audit firms from kind of like sharing documents with the SEC. So it's kind of like they are in the rock, in between a rock and a hard place. And I think that you know, if you look at a trade war, uh, you know, I think the the if if this problem kind of resurfaces as a point uh, as a leverage point in a trade war and if JD is kind of like unable to find another suitable auditor then it could face a possible delisting so I think that's one of a one of the situations about about JD that could happen depending on how the trade war progresses but I mean right now I don't see any 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 discussion uh, or any news uh, regarding uh, the, 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 regarding either side, the US or the China, kind of like using this point as a leverage point. And I think the other, the other issue with the trade war that could result in you know affecting JD's value is kind of like if China chooses to depreciate the renminbi in response to the trade war, and this will of course affect the value of JD because you know it's traded in US dollars and the translation will just affect the value. Yeah. So I think on I think on a direct basis, there's really not much impact, but indirectly it could impact JD a lot. But these situations, you know, they are not really they are not really. I don't I don't foresee them uh, materializing. So just quickly, the 
JD trades on the U. Obviously on the U.S. But well, I'll pull up whether it's Nasdaq. Nasdaq. They trade yeah, on the Nasdaq. But the, you've said they're self-funding or they're funded through their negative working capital, etc. And so, to some degree, I presume that it wouldn't be hard to do the study to find that companies that trade the China companies that trade on the U.S. exchanges do better. Uh, valuation-wise as compared to if they only listed in Hong Kong or Shanghai or Singapore or wherever. But to some degree, I'm just playing out if their auditor was suspended and they were forced to find a new auditor or face delisting. Fundamentally to JD's business, how important is it, do you, you know, from your perspective that they have to, that they're on the US exchange? Is it, I can see how it would affect the price of the stock, but does it affect the value? Does it affect the company's operations if they're not listed on the U.S. market? I think it kind of, it could affect, but I think the, the effect on JD's business is kind of really small. Most, I mean, imagine if JD listed in Hong Kong or, or Singapore or, you know, Shanghai, for example. They, you know, U.S. investors uh, wouldn't really know of JD was, you know, it's not listed on the exchange. And so that there is an issue in there, like, you know, when JD wants to expand beyond China, they might have a small issue in that, you know, you, you kind of need to educate the public about, you know, oh, you know, what, what JD is and accounting. But I think that's kind of like a small issue. But yeah, I mean, like, you know, wherever you choose to this, I don't think it has a huge impact on the value of the company. I mean, uh, apart from the part where you like, you know, you kind of say that, oh, you know, if the valuations in China is, let's say, much lower and the valuations in U.S. is much higher, obviously you want to list in the U.S. to raise the most capital possible. Yeah. Right. Okay. Another, so how much does it matter when we think of China companies in general and when we think of e-commerce companies, Alibaba is still the first name that comes to mind. I know that they're different models to some degree, but they do compete with each other as far as I understand it. How much does that, how do you view the competitive landscape, the competitive issues? How much does that matter to JD.com and to the long thesis? So regarding Alibaba, I mean, this is obviously a very important issue for JD because, you know, Alibaba is kind of like, as you mentioned, the biggest player in China e-commerce. And, and that kind of leads a lot of people to think that, oh, you know, look at Alibaba, they will be able to kind of like uh, destroy or crush JD because, well, first, you know, Alibaba, they have a very dominant market position. They have the largest market share in e-commerce in China. And if you look at Alibaba, they generate a lot, they, they have a lot of earnings, you know, they earn a lot of money. And if you look at JD, this kind of like JD don't really make money. And uh, JD, apart from uh, getting cash flow from working capital, they don't really that get, generate much cash. And then you look at Alibaba, you know, they generate a lot of cash. And so people have kind of, at least investors have kind of have the view that uh, Alibaba basically what it can do is they can use its profits, or use their profits and, and cash flow to kind of subsidize their two-party merchants to a level where JD cannot compete. So basically JD in, in China e-commerce, what JD kind of offers consumers is first lower pricing or competitive pricing and very good logistics, very good delivery. And, you know, obviously, basically they want to offer quality, value and convenience. I mean, the main issue, the main way kind of like Alibaba, how they compete with JD is by kind of like uh, on the pricing portion. So a lot of people think that uh, Alibaba can basically subsidize at a level where JD can, cannot, compete, cannot compete. But actually, I think this is kind of like overblown in that, or I think it's kind of like unwarranted because I actually think that JD has 
more capacity to subsidize compared to Alibaba. So if you look at uh, Alibaba, basically where the subsidies come from, at least on an income statement basis, if you look at income statement is subsidies from them, they come from their advertising spending. And then if you look at JD, it comes from their advertising. But, and I think this is the point that a lot of people miss, it also comes from, it also comes from their discount coupons, which they issue to customers. And these discount coupons are treated as a reduction to re revenue. So basically, if you look at if you look at Alibaba, right, uh, their sales and marketing spending, if we calendarize it so that the fiscal year end is the same as JD, so basically Alibaba, they end their fiscal year in March, but JD does in December, but if we do it so that they both end in December, uh, Alibaba for 2018, they basically had sales and marketing spending of around 38 billion, or numbers in Ramipi. And in fiscal sentence, they disclosed that their advertising and promotional expense is basically 60% of their sales and marketing expense. So basically, Alibaba has around 24 billion RMB in kind of like capacity to subsidize. And if you look at JD, if you look at JD, basically their marketing spend, they spent 19 billion in, in RMB in 2018. And in fiscal 17, 83% uh, of this was, uh, was advertising. So basically they spent 16 billion on advertising. So a lot of people look at this and, and say that, oh, you know, Alibaba, they spent 24 billion compared to JD spending 16 billion. So, you know, Alibaba kind of like more capacity to subsidize compared to compared to JD, but I think if as I mentioned just now that uh, I think a lot of people missed the point that on the discount coupons that JD provide to his, to his customers. So basically, if you look at JD, right, if you look at their direct sales gross margin, so basically if you take their cost of goods sold and you might and you subtract their logistics revenue, the COPS, which basically management has said that oh you know they run their logistics business or at least the three P logistics business and break even, this will give you kind of a direct sales gross margin of around 9%. And a few months ago, Goldman Sachs, they came out with like kind of a report on like Chinese retail and they showed that for Chinese electronics retailers, they earn 14% gross margins on electronics and home appliances. And if you look at uh, supermarkets, they earn they earn around 23% gross margin. And if you look at JD's category mix uh, for their direct sales business, around 70% of this is electronics and home appliance, and around 30% of this is general merchandise and other, so basically supermarket stuff. So if you if you kind of impute the Goldman Sachs numbers, the 14% and 23% on JD's mix, basically JD's normalized gross margin or normalized direct sales gross margin will be around 70% and the difference is what I estimate to be the discount, the difference between the normalized direct sales gross margin and its current direct sales gross margin is what I estimate to be the discount coupons that are kind of like uh, given to consumers and that I count in the capacity to subsidize. So if you add this number to JD's marketing or advertising spend, JD will basically have marketing spend, uh, a total uh, capacity to subsidize of around 50 billion renminbi and this is like more than twice than Alibaba. So actually I think that uh, JD kind of has more capacity to subsidize compared to Alibaba. And I mean, another point that I want to make is that like, if you look at JD, right, they, they, they when they offer 
discount coupons or whatever to consumers. They basically lower prices and then they get economies of scale. Once you lower prices, consumers buy more, consumers buy more, you get economies of scale. I think the benefit of the incremental economies of scale for JD is much greater compared to the, the benefit for Alibaba because the way Alibaba does the sales consumers is through their merchants. And most of their merchants, well, they have around, on Taobao, they have like 12 million, on Tmall, they have a few hundred thousand. And but any one merchant on Alibaba is much, much smaller than JD. So basically, the benefit of incremental economies of scale is much larger for JD compared to Alibaba. And then the other issue is that, well, you know, people say that uh, Alibaba is very profitable and they can generate a lot of cash. So, you know, Alibaba could simply use these profits and cash to kind of like increase their, cap- their capacity to subsidize towards a level where JD can't really compete. But if you look at Alibaba and you look at their profits and cash flow, profits, most of these profits are driven by uh, non-recurring uh, gains, uh, non-recurring income. So basically, if you look at their interest and investment income, which is uh, mostly investment income, and this investment income consists of gain on disposal of subsidiaries and you know stuff of that nature, and this this uh, this this line item basically has accounted for anywhere between. 40% to 70% of, of, of Alibaba's net profit uh, over the fiscal 14 to 9 month 18 uh, period. So basically most of Alibaba's profits, or at least a substantial portion, has been driven kind of by non-recurring items. And if you look at Alibaba's cash flow, well, first they generate a lot of cash, but if you look, but most of this cash has kind of been, it has kind of gone to their equity investments. So if you look at the fiscal nature of period all the way towards the fiscal sending period, which I mean, they don't, I, the reason why I stopped at fiscal sending is because they don't, they don't have a, they don't, they don't put out a full cash flow statement in their, in their, in their third quarter 18 uh, release. But if you look at this fiscal chart for fiscal sending period, Roughly 60 percent of free cash flow of Alibaba's free cash flow has gone towards funding or investing in these equity investments. So basically, my the the point I'm trying to make is that well, while Alibaba has a lot of profits and a lot of cash flow, a lot of these profits are driven by one-time items or non-recurring items, and a lot of this cash flow seems encumbered in the sense that they need to go towards uh, kind of like funding their equity investments and. And there's also the issue of that, you know, if Alibaba was able to kind of like, if they thought they were able to like crush JD by, you know, increasing subsidy, their subsidies, uh, they would have they would have probably done it uh, over the past few years. But I think it's kind of telling that they haven't really ramped it up by, by, by that much or as much as they could have on reported numbers. So, I mean, like, Apart from this, uh, a lot of people have also mentioned that, you know, if you look at Alibaba and uh, and you consider their level of monetization, uh, people would say that or investors are of the view that Alibaba has significant upside towards their take rates uh, with respect to their take, take rates. So if you look at Alibaba's take rate, it's around 3% uh, versus, you know, like, 
their marketplace peers at like roughly 10%. So the, the idea is that Alibaba has significant uh, potential to increase their take rate and this will allow you know, additional capacity to subsidize against JD. But I think this, and this is kind of like the bull case for Alibaba, but I think this is kind of flawed in a sense, or at least this line of reasoning is kind of flawed in a sense that it kind of assumes that the entirety of Alibaba's reported GMV is monetizable. Because, I mean, the take rate of 3% is based on their total GMV. But Alibaba's GMV, they count orders. And uh, they count orders and and they do not count stuff that, you, they, they do not count purchases that, basically they count everything in orders. And, you know, they don't differentiate whether the order has been delivered or whether it's been cancelled and counting. So if an order is cancelled or returned, uh, that GMV is probably not monetizable. And if you kind of look at like, so basically the idea here is that you are trying to kind of like quantify that, oh, if, if, if Alibaba's, why is, why is Alibaba's uh, true take rate on their monetizable GMV? So they're trying to quantify what is, what portion of GMV is monetizable. So basically, if you look at the State Post Bureau, which in, in China, basically what they do is they report customer complaints uh, for e-commerce transactions. So if you look at JD, uh, over uh, per 1 million parcels, JD has 0.2 customer complaints. And if you look at the, the, the delivery players that kind of deliver for Alibaba, which is your STO Express, YTO Express, ZDO Express, Yunta, Best, EMS, if you look at these players, their customer complaints compared to JD, they basically have, have customer complaints that are 40 times to 140 times 40 to 140 times compared to JD. And if you look at JD, when they used to disclose their core GMV and GV, and, and core GMV and GMV, and the implied take rate from, the implied return and cancellation rate from that was 25%. And then you look at this custom complaint thing, and then, you know, it kind of like, you know, the idea that, oh, you know, Alibaba's return and cancellation rate is probably much higher than that of JD. So a significant portion of, of, of Alibaba's Reported GMV is probably not monetizable, but I mean there are other ways to get at this. So another way I try to kind of like quantify what portion of Alibaba's GMV is actually monetizable, if is Alipay. So if you look at Alipay, basically Alipay they they are the payments processor for Alibaba. They process nearly all of their or all of their e-commerce transactions. So what Alipay does is that Alipay charges Alibaba thirteen basis points on their reported GMV, and if you look at interchange fees in the US, they are they are roughly eighty basis points if you use the Fed data, and if you assume that Alipay is already charging eighty basis points on monetizable GMV then monetizable GMV will be roughly one-sixth of that of reported GMV. And if, if, you, if, you do it, uh, if you do it the other way around where you, you, know, you assume that Alipay is indeed charging 13 basis points on reported GMV of Alibaba and that reported GMV equals monetizable GMV, then you will imply that Alipay is, is subsidizing Baba uh, subsidizing, subsidizing Baba to a large scale. So if Alipay charge 80 basis points on reported GMV, basically Alibaba will be paying Alipay 38 billion RMB in payment processing fees instead of the 6 billion that they paid in fiscal 17. And basically this 38 billion represents 60% of Alibaba's net income in fiscal 17. And also the other issue on like kind of like management or at least Alibaba's 
management have kind of given all this, I think they have kind of given us a hint on the monetization, is that in their second quarter 18 press release, earnings press release, what they mentioned was they decided not to increase monetization in the near term due to macroeconomic conditions. So, I mean, you know, if you if if you indeed are having a 3% take rate and, you know, you think that there's upside towards something like the level of 10%, I do not think that this kind of like, you know, jives well with what Alibaba's management has said, because it does not suggest, or at least what Alibaba's management has said, it does not suggest that uh, Alibaba has substantial room to increase monetization. So I think that, you know, there are a lot of kind of like uh, issues with, with, the, with the view that Alibaba can generate is much larger than JD and therefore and therefore they can, you know, outcompete JD or, or, or other things along that same line of reasoning. Got it. That's really, yeah. I think it's a good reminder that you know, and I, I will point the finger at myself for this as somebody who's kind of coming in as a generalist and you sort of adapt high level sort of heuristics to try to understand these companies. But ultimately, when you can drill into these individual levels and to the point about the take rate and how much leverage Alibaba really has over it, I think is really relevant in terms of business analysis going beyond just the, oh, well, you know, Alibaba is this sort of third-party merchants or whatever, and JD is this, and so we just kind of take a shortcut. And so I, I enjoyed that sort of drill-down analysis. So one of the I, – there are two other questions that I think are both kind of elephants in the room. One is the more obvious one, which is Richard Liu faced the rape accusations last year. The charges were dropped. But we don't, I don't think we need to get into the accusations themselves. But what it did highlight was the great degree of control he has over the company and sort of the reliance that the company appears to have on him. It was the same story with Jack Ma and Alibaba and sort of the, the, the founder CEO and the, the story of a founder CEO and just kind of, you know, to be very lazy, you can think of certain CEOs in the U.S. who are in the news for t tech stories and how bulls and bears agree that there's a there's a valuation plus for them because of their sort of image. And so I just wonder, what do you think in light of everything that's gone on with Lou over the past year? What do you think about his leadership, the fact that he has such an entrenched position and how does that how do you deal with that when you think about JD as a company? So I think that if you talk about Richard Liu, uh, I think the, the, the really big fear was that during the, the recent scandal was that oh, Richard might be jailed and therefore he would not be able to operate as chairman and CEO. I mean, I mean that, that situation has kind of been cleared up. But I think the more pressing issue was that I was, or at least I was worried about, and I think some investors also worried was that what would consumer reactions towards this can scandal be? So both to the re re revelation of a scandal and the resolution of a scandal. So when the scandal was kind of broken, uh, you know, consumers could have kind of reacted to it by kind of like boycotting JD. So, uh, you know, that would affect, obviously affect their sales and so on. And, and when the scandal was resolved, 
consumers could have also felt that, oh, you know, they think that oh, Richard Liu is a rich man in China, and, you know, he was kind of like let off too loosely. But I think this, this, these issues, which, which obviously impact the business, it can be tracked. So the way I kind of look at it was that I look at the WeChat index. So basically on WeChat, they have something called, and it's kind of like Google Trends. So basically you can use that to kind of like track traffic or at least track the number of searches for certain keywords. So if you look at the WeChat index and in China, there's another index which is called the SoCo index. If you look at that, and uh, you you realize that you know there there wasn't any sustained decline in like uh, keyword searches for China for for JD in particular, and this kind of indicates that Chinese consumers they are not really changing their purchasing habits as a result of the scandal either to the renovation or the or the resolution of the scandal, and I'm and and I think this this kind of like I mean it kind of like seems that in China at least the culture or this stuff. The way consumers react to these scandals is that, oh, you know, when a scandal has been announced or has been broken, people will be like, oh, they'll be very interested in it for like a few days. And then the, 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 the heat kind of dies off after a while. But I mean, regarding JD's, or especially with respect to uh, Richard's control of the firm, I think that this, uh, I mean, obviously the scandal has kind of hit him personally, but I do not think it has kind of like invalidated his business acumen or things that are more related to JD. And if you look at, I mean, a lot of people are kind of like nervous about just control of 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 JD boss. You know, he owns he owns a, a small, relatively small amount of shares compared to his voting rights. So basically, Richard can uh, basically do whatever he wants. And if you look at the quorum that's required for for a lot of directors meeting, uh, Richard is required to be there. So basically, yes, nearly complete control over JD. But I think this issue is kind of like mitigated by the fact that if you look at if you look at opportunities where Richard could have kind of like treated minority shareholders poorly, the first opportunity is kind of like the JD finance spinoff. So I mean, if, if you recall, when Alipay was kind of like spun off, there was a lot of controversy over that. I think a lot of people were very familiar with that. But if you look at JD finance, uh, the spinoff, there was no controversy with it, was the way he did it was, in my view, pretty fair. And if you look at, if you go back even earlier, in, 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 and I think that it's kind of like important to go towards the early years of JD because, you know, it, it was, if you compare the early years of JD towards now, uh, the early years was kind of like really, it, there was a much larger uh, possibility, possibility of failure, whereas compared to now, there's much lower possibility of failure. Not saying that JD can't fail, but it's a much lower possibility. And therefore, I think one would assume that, you know, if, if Richard would wanted to have wanted to kind of like treat minority shares poorly, he would he would probably have shown it in the earlier years. And if you look at the earlier years, basically there was a there was a situation where Tiger Management, which is a very big hedge fund, they offered to invest two hundred million in JD. And Richard, what did what he did was he counted with two hundred fifty million, and then Tiger immediately accepted. And then Richard realized he was kind of like low-balled by Tiger and because he had a 300 million offer from another firm. And even though that, you know, one of Richard's executives kind of urged him to, you know, 
to, to kind of renege on the Tiger deal and because the deal was only a verbal agree- agreement, uh, Richard chose to accept the Tiger's offer but you know, he believes that he should honor his word. So I think that is, CDF has kind of shown that the issue with, you know, like firms that are kind of like controlled by a founder or management team who has basically full control, the worry is that, you know, they might treat uh, minority shareholders very unfairly. But I think uh, Richard has treated uh, my rich shareholders fairly and I mean you know just because he has treated them fairly in the past I mean he, he will do so in the future but I mean that is something you can keep watch for but it seems that on that side or at least on that basis it has been okay but I think more generally the point that that I'm trying investors kind of are facing is that like if you have a thesis where the founder or the management is kind of like the largest part of the main part or what is underpinning your thesis, I think they are kind of like problematic because like, I mean, usually investors are kind of like attracted to strong management, strong founders, and they kind of like place a premium in the valuation of these companies Was you know, well, they have strong management. But I mean, the issue with this is of course that you are kind of like double counting because, you know, exceptional management would have already been reflected in the financials. And also investors, when they have their, when they have a view that is very management or founder driven, they tend to invest with with management and founders with strong track records, and they will continue to invest in them in with the track record holds. But this it has kind of a flaw or at least a weakness in that it makes an investor very susceptible to selling your position or existing your position when there's a temporary shakeup in the track record. But it's kind of like circular reasoning where you know you know the reason why you invest with this or invest in this company because of the management and, and the reason why you continue to invest is because of the management so if anything changes with the management then you know you kind of are very susceptible to existing opposition and I think more generally like there is a book that I think many of us many of the listeners have read which is the Outsiders book you know where William Thondike kind of chronicled uh, I think eight CEOs who were very good in capital allocation but I mean I, I, I read the book I, I like the book but I think the flaw with the book is kind of like survivorship bias so so most basically the author kind of like looks at this look at looks at this managers and and show that how they can how they are very great at capital allocation but there has been many companies where management has adopted similar kind of capital allocation uh, strategies and where it has not worked out. So, I mean, there is a blog that I occasionally, occasionally read. So it's a young money blog. So it's kind of like in, in one of this, in one of this posts, this blogger basically kind of like chronicled uh, companies which follow uh, the strategies that are outlined in the Outsiders book and where they have failed. So I think that, you know, if your thesis kind on a company is kind of based on, you know, having good management, having a good founder or founder that have a really good track record, it's kind of problematic. So, I mean, if you if you look at my thesis for, for JD, it's not really driven by the founder. You know, I don't say that, oh, I think Richard Liu is, is, is a visionary who can, you know, whatever. But instead, Instead, I focus more on the business because I think it is you you face less issues or at least you do not face the double counting issues and the circular reasoning issues if you have a thesis that is driven by something that is more uh, based on management. I like that. So it's a, it's a balance of on the one hand, you do look at the track record in arguing that Richard's motives, he's had chances to abuse his position and to this point hasn't really abused it. So track record is worthwhile but otherwise the numbers are really 
if there's some edge being delivered by management, it should be showing up in the numbers and you should be able to understand. And obviously you've spent a lot of time with the various numbers here in JD's business to understand why not just some force of superhuman effort, but the actual business drivers that are causing the numbers to work. And so if you can understand those, you can then understand when they go wrong. And that gives you stronger footing for your thesis than just Richard Liu is a genius or whatever else. uh, That sort of seems like the mix. The one last big question I have for you is just around China itself, because I think it's two two things. It's first that it seems to be going through macro issues. It seems to be they just recently lowered their growth targets. And I think many people who watch China closely are suspicious of the numbers that they are posting and point to different concerns that might cause China to really struggle in coming years is is the first part of that. And then also sort of as part of everything else we've been talking about, whether it's specifically to Richard Liu's position or, you know, even you were talking earlier about them over investing in logistics. And I can recall stories around VIP shop, for example, where some people believed that their over investing was was not really credible in terms of what they were doing. I, I, I don't want I don't remember the exact specifics, so I don't want to draw a parallel too fine. But the Questions are raised about China companies. People criticize, investors criticize China companies' finances. I can recall, you know, there are a lot of bears out there about Alibaba. I mean, really, there's the the big companies, even though they seem to have a, this is not Sino Forest or the companies of the early 2010s, but still, there are questions raised about these companies and investors have suspicions and I guess I wanted your take, having studied JD so closely, how do you feel both the macro climate as a economic cycle for China and the sort of business climate of governance and of these sorts of concerns? How does that play into how you think about uh, JD? So I think like on, the, on the macro environment, I mean, like, you know, having a tough micro environment, I think, you know, obviously it results in, you know, share prices going down and, you know, valuations getting cheaper. But I think that it's something that presents an opportunity instead of that something that should be, you know, uh, reacted in uh, another way. But I think more generally on the point that, you know, China, there's a lot of criticism on the corporate governance, on the legitimacy. Uh, I mean, there are definitely issues. So you mentioned a lot of skeptics about Alibaba. I mean, I'm, I, I I think a lot of people call me a skeptic of Alibaba, but, you know, I have, I have, I have, it's not that, it's not that, you know, I think they're doing anything particularly wrong, but it's more like, I think that there are some points that about, about Alibaba that that is kind of like misleading and there are some issues with their accounting particularly uh especially relating to you know the the the, the investment uh the one that i mentioned earlier the the, the investment income accounting for a lot of their net income and the one i also mentioned earlier about them funding the equity investees so there you know there there are certainly games or these ways you can use such transactions to kind of like make things what makes things to kind of like 
make things what look very nice to us investors, whereas the reality is not. It's a very different picture. But I think this is something that's not really limited to China. I think this is something that's kind of like a global issue. Because you know, it, uh, all these governance issues and legitimacy issues, it's not. It doesn't only occur in China. I mean, I guess the best example that I can give for in the U.S. is you know, if you look at General Electric, uh, it has run through a lot of CEOs, and the most recent CEO is the guy from Danaher, which is you know probably the best guy they could they could have hired, but. Many people kind of regard like Jack Jack Welch as like best CEO in or best best manager of the 20th century. But I mean, now I think if you look at General Electric closely, you can kind of like discern that much of Jack Welch's successes has been largely driven by aggressive accounting, and so has most of his successes. And I mean, to give another example, you know, in in the US, there's a bank that's called the Bank OZK. So it is 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 previously called Bank of the US. So basically, this is a bank with 80% of its loan book in kind of like real estate and construction and land development loans. And it, it has industry-leading net interest margins. And it claims that its industry low loan loss prohibitions are sufficient. But I mean, you know, if you look at banking, it's commodity business. You can't have both industry-leading net interest margins and industry-low loan loss prohibitions. That doesn't just make sense. Because, you know, if you had something like that, Wells Fargo or Bank of America or some of other big banks will compete with you uh, to kind of like narrow your margins and that kind of stuff. I mean, you can have that, but not on the on the scale, not on the scale of Ozarks. Most Ozarks is, you know, for most of, for some of the US states, they are the basically the largest lender in construction. And I mean, management kind of defends this by saying that, oh, you know, we take a lot of precautions, such as insisting that, oh, you know, the developer should take the first loss position and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, this is kind of like, you know, management is trying to reduce their risk. And if you are reducing your risk, it comes with a trade off in that you should have lower land interest margins. So, you know, Bank of the Ozarks is another example where, you know, there, there, there are some questions around the accounting, around the legitimacy uh, that you can kind of raise. And I mean, I guess the most famous recent example uh, all this, I think is a recent example, is like Valiant Pharmaceuticals. Like, this was a, basically a pharma company which deceived investors by kind of placing, by the kind of like placing ordinary expenses into the one-off bucket. They do R&D through acquisitions and this allowed them to inflate their cash flow boss you know most people don't include acquisitions in their calculation of free cash flow and they also had many acquisitions where they kind of kitchen sound expenses spring loaded revenue uh, savings is one in particular and they do this on the acquisition start period to kind of like you know uh, make their financials look better than they are and they also engage in all sorts of like aggressive pricing tactics through their specialty pharmacies uh, especially uh, male pharma- pharmacies and I think I mean like you know John Hampton who writes the Bronte Capital blog has covered this much better than I can but I mean the general point I'm trying to make is that you know in China of course there are or at least in any way there are questions about governance there are questions about legitimacy but this isn't something that's limited to one region one country I mean as investors I think that you know you shouldn't kind of classify countries into like oh you know China is a bit suspicious so you know you avoid China and then when US you know you know it's a bit 
it'll be uh, kind of like uh, less suspicious in a sense, you know, then you, you choose to start by concentrating your investment in the US, but I don't think that's a, that's an appropriate action to take. I think, you know, you should consider all companies as kind of like standalone and, you know, if, if in, your, in your analysis, in your research, you find that they are engaging in stuff that make them that or they are, you know, basically not legitimate. I think that is something that you should watch out for, but not only in China, but also in other places uh, that are not China, like US, Europe, or whatever. That's great. That's a good reminder to not be so provincial in the way we think about, or I think about investing and, and to remember that we all live in glass houses. It's also interesting when you think about the recent article Carson Block from Muddy Waters wrote about Germany with yeah, a wire yeah, card. I've read it. Relating to Wirecard, yeah, and Canada is a is a country that gets a lot of questions for the list of companies there. But yeah, also in the U.S., of course, there are both in the past and in the present lots of companies that raise questions. So I think that's a that's a well made point. So my last question to you is: you, you you've held this position for a while. Let's say that you came to the story fresh. You knew you had done, you've still done the work. So I'm not saying try to pretend you don't remember, but let's say you don't have the anchoring of where you open your position. You haven't gone through the ups and downs of the past couple of years. What, what would you like? What would you bring to the table now? Or what would your thoughts be on JD? Are you able to kind of separate yourself from your position and think about what sort of company would, would you, I mean, I presume you would still open a position if you're still holding your position, but like, would you, what, what would you think about JD or what would you change in your process based on what you've learned over the last 18 months of holding this stock and as you've grown and as, a, as an investor generally? So, I mean, like, uh, as it relates to JD, I'll uh, just speak more generally at first. So, basically in investments or the type of investments I kind of look for. So, basically I look for companies where you know the reality and the and, and, and the consensus or the embedded expectations are kind of like far apart so if you consider that from GD specifically if you look at the valuation that I gave just now where you know they, the market is, is basically valuing their core business at a very very low multiple of normalized EBIT and you know if you if you look at that kind of thing it kind of like fits my what I'm looking for so a white gulf between uh, embedded expectations and reality or this my perception of reality which I mean you know my perception could always be wrong because you know I'm not flawless and that kind of thing yeah so so, but I mean, as it right. goes to JD, I mean, I would still invest in JD. Was like I have much more conviction right now than when I started. So when I when I started looking at JD, was it was in uh, twenty seventeen. So I was I was interning at a family office. This family office basically what they did was they did special situations. So basically, whatever Joe Greenblatt wrote in his book, although the name is a terrible terrible name of the book. Uh, so whatever he wrote in the book, we did. And I was attracted to JD because you know they announced the spin off of. JD Finance, and if you look at the at the, at the situation, then uh, JD Finance was still consolidated in JD. So, what the impact JD Finance had on JD was it was kind of like depressing its cash flow by a significant amount. Was what they did was they they, they booked the loans that 
JD Finance issued, they booked it through operating activities. So obviously that de that seriously depresses your operating cash flow. And if you excluded these loans from operating cash flow, you would realize that JD was generating a lot of cash, although most of this cash is from suppliers. So I mean, the thesis that I first had uh, was kind of like, oh, you know, once they spin off JD Finance, uh, the investors will realize that this is a very cash generating generative business and replace the shares. But as time went on, I kind of did more work and, you know, I kind of like look at and did more, uh, I guess, you know, I I, I, I guess I'll put it as I, I analyze the business more than I analyze the special situation. And and over then, you know, you, I've kind of like gained more conviction in that, you know, uh, JD is something that is kind of really mispriced. And I mean, if you look at the present right now, JD is at a lower valuation, a slightly lower valuation compared to, or this is slightly low share price compared to when I went long. And, but its sales and its potential profitability are much higher. So I, I don't see a reason to kind of like not invest in the stock. But I mean, like all this is kind of based on like, I mean, you mentioned it. I uh, you mentioned the part about how I've like grown as an investor. I think that you know one of the one of the big realizations that I kind of had when as I as I kind of like uh, progress was that you know there is a difference between wanting to to make money and wanting to be right. So I mean a lot of people kind of have tied themselves the identity towards being right, no matter whether they make money or not. And this is kind of a big issue in that it's kind of like it kind of reinforces confirmation bias and that you want to be right so much that you know you just look for stuff that will present you right and you don't really consider whether you are wrong. So I think George Soros has a really good quote where he mentioned that oh he doesn't make money uh, he makes money because he can identify his mistakes. So I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but I think that that is a much better way to approach uh, like potential investments. And that's kind of the way that I, I approach potential investments now. So basically, instead of looking at uh, only or instead of solely focusing on you know what can go right, I would focus more on what can go wrong. Like what would instead of looking at what what makes this a good business? I'll look at what makes a bad business and kind of compare that against the business I'm looking at. So, I mean, you know, more generally, I've I've kind of like detached myself from like all this, I think, that I have progressed in detaching myself from um, from being right and more of having a mindset where, where you know, I have a view right now, but if, if evidence or if analysis of, or if uh, you know the really smart listeners of this podcast kind of like realize that you know there's an error in my analysis, then you know I I would be I'll be wrong, and then you know I I would I would I would I would be very happy to kind of like uh, realize that I'm wrong because you know it saves me money. So so I I think my approach or at least my my view towards potential investment has kind of changed from you know I want to be right towards like, you know, I have this view now, but I could potentially be wrong. But until evidence uh, surfaces, or at least I realize that some part of my analysis that's half wrong, uh, I would still keep the position. So, I mean, that is kind of like how I have, I guess, progressed through it throughout the years. But, I mean, I, I'm, I'm still pretty young. Like, I'm currently right now, I'm a college freshman. So, I mean, I still have a lot to learn. I, and, and, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm very glad that, especially like just how I mentioned that, uh, you know, 
I post a lot of stuff on my stuff on Twitter. So I think that Twitter is probably one of the best places. Or this FinTwit, Finance Twitter, is one of the best places to kind of learn. So I mean, you know, I've learned a lot from that. And I mean, I used to run on Seeking Alpha, and I think one of the editors that kind of edited my work the most was Jeffrey Fisher. So I mean, like he had a lot of advice to offer me, you know, on how to, you know, how to think about how to think about companies, how to think about whether something is mispriced that I really appreciated. And 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 yeah, I mean, you know, it's all it's all a learning process, and I think that you know, I still have a lot to learn. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. We got we had shout outs there for FinTwit. We had shout outs there for our colleague Jeffrey Fisher who we've called out before on the podcast. And yeah, I think that's, I think it's hard for anybody who's listened to this. I think it's hard to say that you have, whether or not your analysis and your conclusions are right, it's hard to say that you have that much more to learn about JD because it just seems like you really have thought through this very thoroughly and understand the company really well. And so I really appreciate you taking your time today to talk about it, Lester, and Best of luck with your position. Thanks so much. I mean, this is a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's Behind the Idea. Are you a smart listener who has a different take on JD? Email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com so we can share it with Lester as he considers the stock further. Leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts so other investors can find this podcast. We're talking JD again next week with a bear, so stay tuned. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for listening, and see you next time on Behind the Ideas.